You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and put a new right spirit within me. Do not cast your presence from me, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Steve, uh, gosh, we're later than normal uh, before I start talking, and I have a habit of talking long, so this will be interesting. Uh, one of the things I want to make sure is we, we look at this series, um, Stories of Refuge, and what it means to become a spiritual safe haven, uh, is the idea that we're not just doing lip service to this, but we're actually also looking at the heart part, right? We have said a couple times that, that our language matters, and we're looking at language, and what we project, what we communicate, is it um, triggering to people, is it inviting, all of that, and it's super important to make sure that how we speak, how we project, all of those things matter. At the same time, it doesn't matter if we don't change our heart with it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter of the Bible, it talks about people speaking with lofty words, eloquent speech. But if that eloquent speech is found without love, it is like clanging cymbals. Which, if you've ever heard somebody play percussions off me, perhaps me sometimes, it's not always pleasant. Um, and so we have to also, yes, let's continue to have conversation about our language and what we do, but let's look at the heart. Sometimes, um, as I've worked with other churches and been in community, sometimes uh, churches go through a rebranding. And they'll even change the name of their church to be a little bit more fancy and relevant and and they even slap a fresh coat of paint on the building and maybe like, okay, let's take this word out and we'll use this word now. And, um, and yet, once you're through the doors, nothing's really changed. How people are treated is the same. Um, the same, this is the way it's done, is there. Um, and if we are going to really allow this process of Evaluating us as a church to say, are we a spiritual safe haven for this community? Are we a place where our friends in our world can come in and search and hunger for a divine and find healing encouragement? A God who cares about them. We have to change more than words. It also has to be a heart issue, which means a little bit more work on our part, a little bit more evaluation on our part. And as I wanted to talk about this and, and just the heart issue, we ended up coming across um, some language, even in, in getting ready for this service, that Steve's like, yeah, we got to talk about this. Um, and I tend to be one who, 
as opposed to, you know, when there's an elephant in the room, I tend to be like, hey, everybody, let's talk about it. <laughs> it's big, it's there, let's not ignore it. Um, so we're going to do that today, and I'm going to do that all very concise. But uh, this passion, this song, as well as the scripture that was read, Psalms 51, um, it was written by David. Um, right after a time where he sinned greatly and was very concerned that his actions or his behavior would cost him his intimacy with God. Right? So that the song even cast me not away. Could you just put the lyrics of the song back up? Um, cast me not away from your presence, O God. It wasn't just lofty words. This is David, who is, um, during this time, uh, he's fasting, he's weeping, he's taken off all of his royal robes, he's in sackcloth and ashes, and, and desperately crying out, like, God, please don't let this cost me my intimacy with you. Um, the story of where it comes from, too, is... Uh, it actually starts out, um, this is 1 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. It says, in the springtime, when kings often go out to war, David sent his army and stayed home. And one day he got tired of just lounging around, and so he went up to his rooftop garden, and he's walking around his rooftop garden, which gives him an elevated view of things, and he sees the most beautiful woman bathing. Um, to to kind of, you know, we can, we can hide this. 
wings we've been under the rug, uh, we can make this culturally acceptable. Uh, but uh, when Uriah left, he didn't go home. He stayed out at the guard tower, and uh, along with the other servants. And, and when David found out about it, he challenged, like, why, why did you not go home? Like, I got a plan here. You're not helping me out. And he's like, all of my brothers are off at war, sleeping on hard ground, fighting for their lives. How can I justify going home and eating a big meal and laying with my wife? And so I, I, I won't do that. So David is a bit stuck as he's continuing to try to uh, unbury himself from uh, this decision. And uh, so, right, we have, if you want to, like, start listing sins, right, you have lust, adultery, um, lying, conniving, for sure. But he's like, well, I don't know what else to do. So he sends word to Uriah's commander, and he tells him, I want you to press the wall. Which you usually don't do because they throw heavy things down from the wall and arrows can shoot you. So you typically, um, until you breach the walls of a city, you're not fighting right up alongside the wall. And he tells his commander, I want you to go and, and press the walls, press the gates. And then at the last moment, I want you to pull back all the men but Uriah. And Uriah is killed. So let's add murder to King David. Also, let's just keep in mind that in Scripture, King David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. So try to figure out how that all goes together. Uh, and so, you know, word comes back. Bathsheba goes through, a, you know, the appropriate mourning period. And as soon as the mourning period is done, David collects Bathsheba, takes her into the palace, and makes him uh, her wife. And uh, I do want to read, uh, right? so stuff's going on. Nathan is a prophet. Uh, and Nathan comes to David and kind of tells him this story. He's like, let's just say that uh, we were in, and this is First uh, Samuel 12, 1. He's like, I want to tell you a story. There was this wealthy merchant who had um, several lambs. And, and ooze, and I'm just actually going to read it from Scripture here. It says, uh, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat with his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was loath to take up one of his own flock or herd and prepare it for this wayfarer who had come to him. And so instead he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for that guest who had come to him. At this story, it says that David's anger was enraged. He was mad. Like, how could this rich person in the city do such a thing to someone? It's outrageous. He has a whole flock, but he's going to take this one from this poor man who's doing his best to take care of himself and his family. And he's like, this man should be killed. 
was David's response. Calm down a little bit, like, okay, maybe not killed, but he should repay the lamb four times, and, you know, kind of, like, starts to issue this sentence, and Nathan, the prophet, just looks at David and goes, uh, King David, also, this is the king, right? At any point, you can have your head. Um, so I think Nathan is a little bit brave. Uh, uh, king David, this rich man who's done this thing is you. God knows what you have done, and therefore, here's the consequences. And David, shocked by it. I think sometimes even when we look at the church and we look at some of the damage the church has done through history or whatnot, we think, we often operate under this assumption that like, well, we're the church. We're good, godly people. Our intention is well. We never meant to. And, and yet sometimes we, we can drift from some of our base. Uh, ultimately, the consequence of what Nathan told him is that your son will not live. And so when Bathsheba gave birth to the son, it was very sick. And David's weeping, wailing before God. And this is where this scripture that was read was written. Psalms 51. God, don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. Take my sins, my transgressions. Uh, and he's weeping about it. And he had a huge heart change. And I think when we look at this passage, you know, we, we look at the idea that David is a, is a man after God's own heart, a person after God's own heart. It's not that David was a murderer. I think one of the things that just brings joy to God's heart the most is when we realize that we are not perfect, when we have flaws, and our reaction to that is to turn to God. Right? Sometimes in the church, we, we just we value morality, doing things right, doing things just so, checking off our religious boxes. I go to church on Easter. I went on Christmas. I, you know, gave to the charitable thing. I, you know, and, and oh, I got all my checklists done. And I don't think that's actually what delights God. Or, oh, look how pious I am, right? The Pharisees. We're kind of like this, and there's this passage of scripture where Jesus actually goes through and like, woe unto you, right? Matthew 23, it's, it's the woe chapter, and he's just holding the Pharisees accountable. But they look the part, they do all the right things, at least publicly. Uh, they use the right words and the right language. They appear religious. And in Matthew 23, he actually, one of the, the woes unto you is, he challenged him, he's like, you're so worried of make, making sure the outside of the cup is clean. You polish it, it's shiny, so that way others, you know, not that this is a polished and shiny thing, but let's just say it was. From your vantage point, from your perspective, you would see this pretty cup. Maybe a church with a new name, fresh coat of paint, some lyrics that have changed. And yet he challenged me because you completely ignore what's going on on the inside. And 
the inside is filthy. Then he says, Woe unto you again, because you are like whitewashed tombs. These tombs that are full of decay, disease, as rotting flesh and bodies are going on on the inside. They didn't quite have a balmy down like we have it today. And so when you were to crack one of those open, it would stink. <laughs> it would be filthy. There would be disease rotting on the flesh that people could catch and whatnot. But it was okay as long as we just painted it. And we made the outside clean. And the challenge to the Pharisees, the challenge to David in this process was, do not only be focused on the outside. We can change. We can talk about language that's offensive. We can be um, inviting and inclusive in this and that. And yet, if we don't do the hard work, we're like cleaning symbols. And people know, right? And we have guests and visitors, and they walk through the door, and they know that you're just faking it, like that people know, people have a, a meter that registers uh, hypocrisy or false things, and so the challenge that I want to throw out, and we had a deep dive on Esther, and we're going to look at other passages, is to continue to keep our heart and our mind open, to say, God, here's my heart, transform it, renew it, make it clean. Because I don't want to just talk about language and be appropriate and be like, well, we use uh, trauma-informed language at West Portland United Methodist, and we are culturally aware, and we, you know, I, I don't want the words. I want us to live it out and to see the beauty of what restoration looks like in people's heart because we live it out. Now, one of the challenges is we come, um, and we're about to sing a hymn that is, is really beautiful, but it, it also has this language around wash it as white as snow. Even in the verse that we read today, um, it was from the um, New Revised Standard Version, and it talks about making it um, as clean as snow. Uh, it removed the word white, because culturally, even when we start looking at whitewashed tombs, whitewashing, while in the scripture text, um, has an intended language around just clean and pure and, and a wool's lamb that is, if it was all white, it had more value to it as you sold to traders. Um, culturally, it's been taken and used in abusive ways, even within the church, in terms of whitewashing and what it means. And... Uh, so I think, you know, even in preparation, it's like, oh, here's this illustration. We've got to deal with this. We've got to talk about it. What does it mean culturally? I also want to point out that, you know, in the intent of writing it, David, who writes it as well as Isaiah, talks about being clean and white as snow as well in Isaiah chapter 1. Um, these were not, these words that we find in Scripture were not written by Caucasian people. Right? These were written by people from the Middle East. They were people of color. Their intent around scripture was not about any kind of racial segregation or discrimination or trying to promote Western European Christianity. And so we could argue that wasn't the intent, so we're going to keep using this language. And we have a right to. 
and the, the, the intention and, and all, and we could justify it. But in reality, the concept and the idea of whitewashing has done harm to people. And we've talked about, like, oh, is it, is it true, right? Is it, as long as it's truthful, we can use it, we can do it, or, or whatnot. But, but we've been having this challenge of not just like, okay, what's the, the language around it? But is it right? Is it safe? Is it just? Culturally, the term whitewashing as it's being uh, seen most of today is that if somebody of a different culture or heritage would come in and join us, that we would accept them as long as they toned down their cultural heritage and began to actually act and maybe look a little bit more like us. I'm glad that you have this cultural heritage and this music that really is meaningful to you, but we are going to actually um, only, you know, you have to kind of conform to us and our music and our language. Uh, we will accept you being a different culture or heritage as long as you begin to conform or look like us. Um, it's even to the point where uh, the term whitewashing is becoming an, an insult and a phrase that others are using, like, oh, you're, and this accusing of compromising in order to fit in. And so language matters. Heart matters more, but language matters. And, and as we deal with this, as we look at it, as we, we dive into things, um, we could either just move on, try to skirt past it. Um, we're actually changing a line in this verse, or in this hymn, to, to remove it, and I'm like, well, let's not just skirt around it, let's talk about it. What does it mean for a church to step into being responsible, engaging, um, and I want to make sure, like, hey, let's talk about that, the intent, let's talk about what we find in Scripture, but how do we use that language? Yeah, I think talking about the Pharisees being compared to whitewashed tombs is important because it matters what's going on on the inside. But culturally, in our language and how we interact with others, are we mindful of that same language could be harmful? Or if there's not a biblical understanding of Hebrew language and understanding that actually written from Middle Eastern, you know, that you shouldn't have to have a degree to understand... <laughs> And the reality is simple. We, we, I would say we have a right to use the term whitewashed. It's in Scripture. It's there. But if we're loving people, we also have a right not to use it. Are we so committed to our rights that our rights become more important than what the potential harm to a human being is? That doesn't seem lovely or encouraging. And so we're taking out the lyric in this next hymn. Um, the line originally goes into, and it's, uh, it says, Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now. And we're just simply changing it to repeat. Wash me just now, Lord. Wash me just now. And that's my heart for all of us. I come, and I have good intentions. Um, 
even working for a nonprofit, trying to do good, I know that in doing good, oftentimes there's harm, and we try to like, how do we do the most good while doing the least harm, while staying authentic to our values? I, like, it's hard. We put a lot of resources on the street, but that means we put a lot of garbage on the street, and it has an environmental impact, and so doing good is causing harm. How do we rectify that? And so I come before God myself as we sing these songs, like, Lord, here's my heart. I want to hold it loosely before you because I want you to be changing it, to be renewing it, to be restoring it so I can become closer to God, but also that I can be used as an agent in this world where other people can find that hope, joy, restitution, uh, relationship with the God trying to redeem all of the brokenness that we have experienced.